Heavenly Father, help us this morning to behold your grace. That as we receive it and have our hearts changed, we might be able to live lives of grace for your name's sake. Amen. Battered, beaten and bruised, he was seeking solace and comfort wherever it could be found. Tonight especially, he was desperately hungry and in need of shelter from the cold. Stumbling through the narrow streets, he knocked loudly on the door of the parsonage. A minister will give me some bread, he thought. Possibly even a place to rest in his porch out of the rain. And as the large door creaked open, light streamed forth. And as the minister was greeted with the sight of this wretched man on his doorstep, he was moved with compassion and love. He welcomed him into his home and fed him with a rich meal of meat, bread and wine. And then gave him a comfortable bed and fresh clothes after a bath. And it was as the man was washing that the minister noticed he had the branding upon him of a prisoner. But he thought nothing of it and committed all things to God. As the minister went to sleep, he quietly prayed for the man that he would find a way back to a normal life once again. In the morning, the minister was surprised to find the man had fled. He had heard noises in the night, but worries were confirmed when there was a huge knock on the door from two local policemen. A man had been found with a large bag of silver tableware and candlesticks. The minister glanced to the dining room and saw they were indeed missing. Are these yours? The policeman asked. We have the thief and we are looking to press charges. The minister paused for a moment and said, they were mine. But I gave them to that man last night as a gift, and they are now his possession. The policeman, startled by this admission, could barely believe it. But the minister clarified it once again. And overwhelmed at this indescribable act of grace, the thieving man was humbled to tears. He would never forget the minister's words to him that day. With this I have purchased you, and I now give you back to God. That act of grace changed the man from within and his life was never the same again. Now you may have heard that story before. It's adapted from Victor Hugo's famous work, Les Miserables, translated as The Wretched Ones. But why did I tell it? Well, we're continuing on in a series looking at the foundations for the Christian life. And today we're considering the golden rule. But we can't consider the golden rule before first considering grace. And grace needs to be understood rightly as the opposite of what you deserve. Like that received by the man in the story from that minister. It's not just mercy. Mercy would have seen the man return the stolen items and being let off. No, grace goes further and deeper. It's more than just undeserved mercy. Grace is the opposite of what is deserved. And grace must be the foundation of our Christian lives if we ever hope to live by this golden rule, to do to others as we would have them do to us. Grace must be both the beginning and the end of the Christian life. So we need to deeply know the God of grace. 
Well, we're continuing on in Luke 6 with this Sermon on the Plain, and the teaching is very challenging. But you see, the problem is, we often read the moral teaching of Jesus through the wrong filter. Our tendency as humans is to look inward and and scrutinise ourselves under the burden of the law when we feel the weight and challenge of it. But actually, until we first grasp the grace of God, we'll never be able to follow in the pattern of Jesus and live a life of grace. How indeed could the minister in that story show such grace to an apparent enemy, the thief? Only because he himself had received such grace from God. And understanding and meditating deeply on the grace of God is where the power lies to live the Christian life of grace. Because it's not easy. I mean, just look at the passage we read here of loving our enemies. Lending without expecting repayment. Loving the unlovely. Such outrageous demands appear unwise, we might tell ourselves. And yet these are the very principles of living that we are called to as God's people. But as we see them, we must remember the grace of God. The grace of God manifest in Jesus Christ, who of course loved his enemies, even prayed for them. The one who was not only slapped by his enemies, but betrayed, sold out, punched, kicked, whipped, and finally crucified. And yet after all that, as he hung there upon the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. As the God of grace, Jesus lived a life of grace. And we need to understand that the grace of God in Jesus is both how we enter and continue on in the Christian life. To live a life of grace, we must know and first receive the grace of God. And as we begin to receive that, we'll be able to start living out this golden rule. But it all starts with the change that God's grace affects in our hearts We can't do it on our own. So secondly, the heart of grace. And what is the stance this morning of your heart towards your neighbour? What about towards your enemy? That difficult person on the street? That awkward colleague? Do you love them? We used to have a great little hoover that could be charged up and then moved all around the house, nice and lightweight. But unfortunately, since moving, we've been unable to locate the charger. The hoover still looks just as it did, but it's got no internal power to operate anymore. It's basically useless. It can't perform its function. And in the same way as Christians... We need to have the power of the grace of God deep within our hearts, changing our hearts and our attitudes towards others, if we're ever to live out a life of grace. It's no coincidence that when Jesus was asked what the greatest command was, that he said, it is to love God with heart, soul, mind and strength, and to love our neighbour as ourselves. 
That's the perfect model for human relationships. Vertical reconciliation and love for God working itself out into horizontal reconciliation and love for our neighbour. But you see, without the grace of God, we might try and go about doing little things here and there for other people. A bit like how I've sometimes got that hoover out and thought that despite it having no power, maybe by just rolling the brush inside, I'll pick up a bit of dirt here and there. But of course, it doesn't work. There's no power in the hoover to work. And in the same way, all our charitable acts, all our church activity will only have the power to be done in the way God desires if it flows from the grace of God within us. You see, it's quite easy to have hearts that become like a stagnant pond. Not receiving anything and not giving anything out. Maybe, though, you feel like you give a lot out, but maybe you don't receive much. Maybe you receive much, but don't really give anything out. But God's desire is that our hearts are rather like a crystal reservoir that receives fresh water in to then give it out again. As we receive God's grace, we can begin to love our neighbour and even our enemy because God's power is at work within us. You see, we first need to nurture the heart of Christ within us if we're to live in that pattern. And it's worth considering ourselves in God's sight as we look to do that. So as we consider ourselves in God's sight as sinful and on our own, in our own strength, rightly deserving of his judgment, but nonetheless forgiven of everything, we can then begin to show that same forgiveness and grace to others. When we consider that we were once God's enemies, turning our backs on him, showing no interest in him, but nonetheless he pursued us in his mercy and love, we can then begin to show that kindness and mercy to those we might count as enemies. Just think of those who must have prayed for the Apostle Paul before his conversion as he was going about persecuting, even murdering believers. And how he spoke of himself as standing as such a trophy of the grace of God towards the chief of sinners. When we consider that we were far from lovely in God's sight, but rather wretched. And yet he still loved us even while we were still sinning against him. When we understand that, we will be able to stop judging other people in a haughty and judgmental manner. And we'll rather see that just as God mercifully loved us when we were so unlovely, we can begin to love others that we find unlovely. And in fact, as we do so, we'll find our hearts strangely warmed towards those we find difficult to love. As we love with action, our hearts will begin to warm within. Now, of course, there needs to be wisdom here. Jesus teaching gives us principles so we don't give to the beggar when we know they'll spend money on drugs or alcohol when I was in Oxford I was encouraged to direct people on the streets to 
the relief agencies in the town and not to give because it only perpetuated the problem. In the same way, we don't give away every item of clothing until we're naked. Nor do we become doormats for abuse by our enemies. Rather, every principle here is to be guided by nothing less than love. So, of course, if it's unloving to entrust money to someone who will only use it to further damage themselves, we use it for their good, but in a different way. If we give everything away, such that we then become a financial burden to others, that wouldn't ultimately be loving. No, we we give out of love, but wisely. Of course, also, this sense of turning the cheek, if we've been slapped on one side to turn the other, there needs to be wisdom there. If If we're in an abusive relationship of any kind, we must, of course, remove ourselves from that situation. The late Bishop Desmond Tutu has some wisdom for us here. Forgiving is, is, forgiving is not forgetting, it's actually remembering. Remembering and not using your right to hit back. It's a second chance for a new beginning. And the remembering part is particularly important, especially if you don't want to repeat what happened. You see, in all these things, the guiding principle must be that of love. The stance of our hearts towards our neighbour and enemy must be one of love. And that even might mean, in some circumstances, removing ourselves from them for a time or even permanently. But love with wisdom must be the guiding principle. And as the love and grace of God changes our hearts within, there will be that practical outworking of God's grace shown in our actions. God of grace, the heart of grace, and finally, the integrity of grace. Hypocrisy. Now, there's a word that's featured in the media in the last few days. Specks and planks. Allegation after allegation of illegal, boozy parties during lockdowns, held even by those who wrote the rules. A hypocrisy that, in the words of our own Prime Minister Boris Johnson, has created an understandable rage. Hypocrisy is like a cancer that creeps. And when it happens within the church, it destroys the witness of the gospel quite often. And it also destroys those overtaken by it. Because at root, hypocrisy is the opposite of integrity. When we only weigh our lives and actions, when we know they're under scrutiny, that's not flowing from a heart of grace. But the Christian is always under God's watchful eye. His eye there not to condemn, but to delight in our lives of integrity as we yield over to him. And the integrity of grace is founded upon the character of God himself. So as we seek to imitate Christ and love him, we won't be motivated to love others out of a a desire to improve our our rating or status. No, we'll, we'll do it because as God's children, we delight in pleasing our Father. And that fruit, that good fruit of integrity, it flows from a heart that's been changed by the grace of God. In Victor Hugo's novel, 
um, that wretched man, Jean Valjean, he later shows grace to a man who's vengefully pursued him for years, the policeman Javert. But Javert, unlike Jean Valjean, cannot comprehend nor receive grace when it's given to him. It creates an internal combustion and he just explodes within. It destroys him. He cannot comprehend it. But where Jean Valjean receives the grace of God with humility, that grace extended by the minister, it changed his heart within so that his life became one of integrity. That's the dynamic of the Christian life. Grace received, a heart changed, a life of integrity. Now our lives will only ever be imitations of Jesus' perfection. And whilst we strive to imitate Christ, God's people can let each other down. We can let the family down. And where the church has been hypocritical, it is damaging. Think of all these abuse scandals that we've heard of of late. They've been so terrible. But we find hypocrisy so awful because deep within, we long for someone in leadership To not be hypocritical. To be genuine and authentic. We long for someone who exhibits the values that we wish and know deep down we should have. We long for someone perfect to lead us. But too often we fall for false messiahs. Whether the glamorous messiahs of celebrity culture or politics who we think will solve all our problems but then Never really do. Only Jesus is the true Messiah. The true perfect person of perfect integrity and zero hypocrisy. And at whatever level we've found ourselves committing it, the reality of our hypocrisy should turn our hearts to the one who is never like that. And as we build our foundations on the grace of God in Jesus Christ we will be able to forgive hypocrisy in others, in our neighbour, and even in our enemy, precisely because God has forgiven it in us. But also, because the very anger and judgment we feel towards it is shared by God. The way anger at hypocrisy manifests in society today, today is seen increasingly through this growing cancel culture movement. Amy Orr Ewing, a theologian from Oxford, wrote about this in the Times the other day. She wrote, the instinct of cancel culture is that someone must pay for their transgression. But that points beyond itself to the echo of a story that's given meaning to millions around the world for over 2,000 years. Jesus of Nazareth, as God incarnate, willingly dies by crucifixion. His death is described in the New Testament as a ransom, an offering and a sacrifice. He pays a price for the transgressions of the world. And that means forgiveness can be real. The price we intuitively sense must be paid is actually paid by Jesus. Forgiveness means that the incident did hurt, was wrong and does matter. But I have the power to forgive you, to release you from my vengeance because I trust that justice will ultimately be done. 
The transgress- transgression will be judged by a high authority than me or you. And if any of us truly repent and own our own wrongdoing, we can be forgiven in this ultimate sense because someone has paid. You see, knowing that truth, drinking that deep, that justice has been met in Christ for us and will be met upon the unrepentant in the future, it releases us from bitterness to give that over to God and to live out the golden rule. To love an enemy even if they continue to be hard and unrepentant in their behaviour. To continue to pray for them. But to trust that if they continue in in that way, God will one day judge them. And it gives us that heart of grace as we remember our own sin before God. That will show itself working out in the integrity of grace in our own lives. That we may do to others as we would have them do to us. And in living such lives of grace, we will, as the passage says, be sons, children, that is, of the Most High. We will commend God to a watching world. And he will honour us for faithfully imitating him and reflecting our Father's values. Children of God are called to imitate their Heavenly Father and to bear the family likeness. The grace of God shown to us works out in a grace extended to our neighbour and even our enemy. And those who live such lives of grace will be children of the Most High, a reward and a blessing that only eternal heaven will allow us to one day fully comprehend. Amen.